listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and we're coming to you from Clubhouse Studio, Paul Antonell's wonderful studio here in beautiful downtown Rhinebeck, New York. And we have a great guest with us today. Dare I say, he is an amazing guitar player, a songwriter, a producer. He does a lot of things. You've probably mostly seen him as a sideman for some luminaries, but he's got his own band too, Spooky Ghost. We're going to talk about all of it, but first I have to introduce him, Mr. Jerry Leonard. Jerry, welcome to The Rick Z Show. Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah. Been dying to talk to you about all kinds of stuff and listening to your music. Before all that, though, I want to go back to Ireland when you were growing up. I guess they call it the formative years. Musically speaking, I wonder what it was like growing up in Ireland in terms of the bands. There were obviously a lot of Irish bands and things that weren't big all around the world. Or maybe you were drawn to American music. I don't know. What kind of stuff did you listen to back in Ireland during those times? Right. It's it's a very interesting question, Rick. Um, Well, you know, Ireland uh, back in the... So I would have been kind of, you know, coming of age, learning the guitar at age, you know, say 12... I would have, it would be 1974, so early 70s. But Ireland, um, more than America, was a little more old world, I think. So if you can imagine that, as life was pretty simple. We had plenty going on, plenty to eat and everything like that, so life was comfortable. But, you know, one room was heated. You maybe had a radio or a record player. So it wasn't... Things kind of drifted into the house, as it were, you know? Mm-hmm. I would say the climate was, you know, Ireland was very influenced by English, what was going on in the English music scene, which, of course, was one of the epicenters of, of the, you know, of the music scene. Uh, so we got Top of the Pops uh, on the TV. We later got the Old Great Whistle Test, mm. which was one of the only places where bands played live on television it was on the graveyard hours on a Tuesday night or something like that but it was amazing to see bands play at a certain point like I wouldn't have been able to see bands play but I saw these see these bands on the television playing and stuff so that was really exciting and what about music from Ireland itself right so the very healthy band scene first of all there's a very healthy traditional music scene but then I was more drawn to uh, when I started to learn guitar and stuff we all started a band. We all had a band going on, and there was there was a lot of opportunities for bands. So, a lot of homegrown stuff. And then once the new wave thing hit in the you know later in the seventies, it was like you know that was open season for bands. So a lot of local bands, some of which made big. You might have heard of some of them. And uh, but there was always you know we were always fighting for gigs and whatnot. But it was it was healthy. There was a lot of places to go out and play. Now, your style of guitar playing, jumping ahead to who you are as a guitar player now, is a very specific style. It's very ethereal. It's a very harmonic-based style in a lot of ways. I I think it was a friend of yours that that coined the phrase. It was a great phrase. It was ambient aggressive. Yeah. I love that. I mean, that kind of makes sense. What do you think of that? Well, yeah, that was my friend uh, when I first started doing Spooky Ghost, which was Spooky Ghost is, is the name I've given to my solo work. Yes. And since I've come to America, that's when I established that. Yeah, I love the sonic spaces and I love that the guitar can generate these beautiful tones. You know, it's it's very hard to define, but it's different than keyboards and things. And sometimes people say, oh, that's that's a keyboard or 
that's a keyboard texture and I'm like well no it's actually a guitar sound and it sits in the music in a different way mm -hmm. it just it just populates the music in a different way I love the sound of it but I also love the like the the more visceral kind of playing of the electric guitar and how it can be very angular and very intense so I think maybe that's where the aggressive part of of things come from so it'll sometimes be a somewhat serene pastoral thing and then it'll be interrupted by this kind of like need to play you know some loud electric guitar in the middle of it all you know so is this what just happens naturally when you play or did you develop that style i think it's a yeah i think i developed it and i was drawn to it and i developed it and i i had a not super unusual but it's a little bit of a different kind of way in like I never went to music college for instance I don't know if that really matters but I think we were left to our own devices a lot more in in Ireland and when you played in a band you had to be distinctive it was kind of a given that your band would sound different than the other band and it was kind of a given that the guitar player would be a little more inventive especially when the new wave stuff came it gave us a lot of room to kind of reinvent ourselves I think as guitar players that's very interesting and then, I, and then I studied classical guitar. That's the last component, I would say, is that when I was leaving school, the only music that I could do seriously was classical guitar. And for that, it satisfied my dad that I was actually kind of like doing music, uh, taking it seriously. So it checked that box. But it was really just two lessons. It was about an hour of tuition every week and maybe hmm. a half an hour of theory. So it wasn't like super intense. The rest of the time, I was kind of left to my own devices. You love to play that PRS guitar, I noticed. Um, yeah. I love that guitar, too. It's got a great sound, and it's really unique because I'm not sure how it works, but it, does it have acoustic pickups and electric pickups in it? Because you, you can switch back from one to the other, right? Yeah. So I was starting to play with my own stuff uh, where I needed to kind of have that acoustic element and electric element, and then I, I came across that guitar. Somebody put me in touch with Paul Reed Smith, and they actually needed somebody to demo the guitar. They were just come out with that guitar out at the NAMM show. So I went and I did that. They gave me a guitar, which was amazing. I started to use it more and more. And when I play now as a duo with Suzanne Vega, I use it the whole night. And when I play my solo stuff, I use it because it's got piezos in the bridge. It's actually a ho proper hollow body guitar. So it's got a carved top and back. So the thing resonates. And then it's got a piezo in the bridge with some electronics to make the acoustic sound. It's really extraordinary. And then it's like a regular electric guitar, two pickups with a selector switch. And then the thing plays like, you know, most of my guitars are old Gibsons and old kind of, you know, personality laden things. But this sure. this new guitar is like, it's very even. It's a great instrument to travel. And um, I bring it around the world. And it's, it's, it's just very strong. It's very solid. It's got a beautiful sound. It's a beautiful sound. And it's got a beautiful tone. And to me, it's like that combination. There's a few guitar companies doing it. But to me, it's like that's the most innovative thing that's happened to the guitar in a long time. You know, we had the Stratocaster and the Les Paul and the Telecaster. And we've had all the the variations on that as electric guitars and then the you know the whammy bar systems and all that kind of thing but yeah. this guitar having the the dual output and both instruments combined it's just that's it's really opens up a lot of p possibilities do those tuning pegs have locks on them no they don't have lock they have locks for for when you change the string so it's like a quick change thing but oh, it's not like the locking tremolo 
I notice you use a lot of equipment as part of your style too. For example, the looper, you're, you're, yeah. and you're very good at it. I mean, that thing confuses the hell out of me, that, yeah, the looper. Yeah. I've tried to use one before and I just got lost right away and gave up, but yeah. but you got it down. You also use the Ebo quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, for our listeners, would you mind telling us what is an Ebo, how does it work, and what's it used for? Right, yeah, so the Ebo, it came out in the late 70s or the 80s, so it's been around for a while. And some crazy guy in New York developed it. And what it is, is it's it's a, like a magnetic bow for metal strings. Like, so you have the violin, right? And then you have a, um, a gut string or, you know, probably some synthetic version of that these days. And a bow, but on a guitar, like uh, you have a steel string. So the bowing... Doesn't, it doesn't really work except for special effects like Jimmy Page did or whatever. Yeah. But that was mostly banging and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So this is a, it's a little unit that's battery powered and when you hold it up to the string, it's got these alternating magnets, I believe, and it starts to vibrate the string. And so it gives you the effect of that a bow might give you as in normally when you hit a string, you have, you have the loud part at the beginning and then the, the string decays and that's the end of the sound. Right. With the bow, it's a constant. So it's a different approach to the string. So by using that, you know, it's, if you want, it's infinite sustain. Um, yeah, but very then fluid. You can, you can control it because when it be- goes over the pickup, it starts to react with the pickup magnets. So it'll become more intense. If you move it away, it's less intense. So it's a little clumsy at first, but I, I really like it. And it's just, it opens up this other area of the guitar. It's only monophonic, so you can only play one note at a time. But oh, that's you, okay. You can't play chords with it. No, you can't play chords. There's another thing called the uh, sustainer, I believe, that maybe Fernandez made, where it'll allow you to play chords. But I, I, I don't have one of those. <laughs> no. I have an Ebo. Well, you play the Ebo just great. It sounds like it's pretty much all that you need. To I actually do like what you're doing. the. You know, I like the limitations of things as well as hmm. like when something does one thing and it does it really well that's fine by me it doesn't need to do every string you know so it makes you dig a little deeper for what you can do with that you know um, some people have have more advanced techniques where you can rake it across the strings and get this kind of arco effect you can get those little things yeah you know you do a lot of things Jerry amongst them is producing and I wonder if you started to think about that kind of thing way back in Ireland when you were young, because I know you worked as a tape operator in a studio for a while. Yeah. Back when there was such a thing as tape operators. That's right, yeah. Explain for our listeners, if you could, what a tape operator does. A tape operator was uh, the the kind of, the name for the guy who'd sit in the corner and, and literally operate the tape machine from the early like BBC sessions and whatnot. It became the the name for, for the the assist now they're called assistants in studios but basically you came in in the morning in the studio you set up for the session you set the desk for the engineer you got the tape you labeled the tape boxes you made the tea you ran out and got sandwiches and you did everything in between and then you broke down the session wrapped up all the mic cables vacuumed the studio and left it ready for the next guy to come in so you you did what shabum does no (laughs) sorry shabum i know you engineer sorry sorry well, we had, to, we had to be able to use the tape machine and a vacuum cleaner as, as well. So it was super advanced. <laughs> wow. But you got to learn. And I got access to, I mean, I, I was fascinated with recording. 
and I started to use, um, I had this heavy, I call it a plectrum, but you call it a pick in America. It was a pick, guitar pick, and you put it, I discovered if you put that between the array's head and the tape. So I had, my friend had this Tamburg tape machine, and so we would record the first layer, you know, of the, and then we put this pick over the array's head, and we rewind the oh. tape and record again, and it wouldn't erase the first guitar but it would record the second one on top. You listen to this, Paul. <laughs> and so we would build up like multi-tracking that way. I mean, the, the quality was terrible, but to us it was like perfect. Wow, that's amazing. So you can imagine my you know, excitement when I, when I managed to uh, get a job in a 24-track studio and go in on the first night to, you know, to start learning, and they had a Helios 28-input console okay. and a Studer 24-track machine. Neumann, you know, things I'd not, never even seen. So I got to learn all about microphones and and recording techniques and stuff. And then I got to do, so the this, this studio that I worked in, uh, it did jingles in the morning and kind of bands in the afternoons, mm -hmm. mostly local Irish bands. This and is they, in Dublin, right? In Dublin, yeah, in the late 70s. And then they would all, all the, everybody would be working at the weekend. The jingle guys would be at home. The the uh, the bands be all playing Friday Saturday Sunday night, so the studio was free. So I talked the studio manager into letting us ha get a deal. So for two hundred quid, three hundred quid, we could get a band in there Friday night six o'clock until Monday morning at eight a.m. And we we had this roll of two inch tape that we would rent to the bands, and uh, raise it and use it in the next weekend for the next band or whatever. And uh, we would do sessions. So that's how I learned to engineer. So then I became, you know, I could try and learn all, all that I picked up during the week. I would try it out at the weekend myself. I heard a rumor that this little band some may have heard of by the name of U2 came through that studio. Is that true? Well, I, The Edge came and played on, on, a, on one of those sessions. He came just as a guest guitar player for one of the bands. Uh, talk about a guy who has a, a very affected sound. Some of that is Daniel Lenoir, probably. But in addition to that, he's you know he uses effects and delay. He was really the first guitar player in the '80s in a rock band that I yeah. heard using effects that way. Did that have an influence on you when you started to listen to bands like well, you too? Well, it did. You know, I would say you know we were a little bit contemporary there maybe a, a year or so older than me but yeah. we were that we were all doing that you know my first effect was the uh, was the memory man and uh, i had a chorus pedal and the memory man so we were, we were all drawing from that kind of sound now there was a bunch of guitar players playing like that i have to say the edge is an extremely talented guy and and has taken that to like such a far level sure and working with someone Lan, like lanois and eno I think that that also that brought in this whole other layer. I mean, what he does now is like it's insane. But we all kind of came from that like echo and uh, playing more open strings and little riffs on the guitar that are not not quite as traditional based as as like American. And what I'm hearing is is that was because of the competition to be unique in in Ireland at that time, right? Yeah, yeah. I think your band had to stand out in some way, you know. So you learned a lot in that studio, uh, the 24-track studio that you graduated to, mm. probably learned a lot about, well, engineering, producing, all the things that you do now. And I'm wondering how that led to, because of course I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but you were still in Ireland because you were approached at one point, 
right there in your home by no less than Chris Blackwell from Island Records, and he offered you a deal with Island, right? That's right. How did that come about? Well, yeah, so, you know, I did develop my craft a little bit in the studio. Like, for instance, I remember Phil Linnett came in and produced a a local band called Auto De Fe, very good band, and I was on the session as a tape-op assistant, and uh, seeing him work with the band, and, you know, right there and then on the speakers, it, it started to sound like a record. Mm. So what I, you know, that was a huge learning curve for me that like, oh, it's to do with a lot of factors. It's not just like, you know, the technical thing of recording the thing, but it's like, what are you recording? What is the part? How does that part work with another part? How does, so it's like arranging for the band as well as for the song. And so I, st- that, that was a fascinating thing for me. Fast forward to, I was in my, I was probably, I came back to Dublin. I went to Amsterdam, um, to Copenhagen for a year to get out of Dublin just to, you know, I needed a change of scene. And I came back and I formed this band with another guy who was also interested in, like, essentially, we'd all had bands and the drummers would always leave and all that kind of thing. And we just wanted to kind of like chord these high demos that, that really reflected what we wanted to do. And that's what we created. And that's what Blackwell heard and came over and signed us to Ireland. It allowed us to produce the record ourselves. He liked that sound. He loved the sound, yeah. And whatever happened to that deal? I mean, we made one record and it came out on Island Records and it did what it did, but it didn't catch fire. Yeah. So Island was signed to, sold to EMI or however it goes. And you know, you're left at the end of four years and you have a nice leather jacket and that's about it and some yeah. good memories. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, that was the, the curve of that. You know, it was a validation. It, it was a great time for us. Um, we got to make a record. I got to come to New York as part of promoting that record. And that's when I first saw New York and fell in love with New York. Looking back, it was just one of those catalysts, you know, that, that changed your life. But that's, of course, what we always wanted to do. We were always trying to get a record deal, make yeah. a record, be the next band. And at that point, Hinterland finished. I was, it was like 93, 94, and I could have started another band in, in Dublin. And I was like, I got to get out. So I moved to New York. I. I had the opportunity to go. I'd worked on a record over in New York and the artist wanted me to come and play some shows. So I had a little bit of work and I was like, I had $200 and an airline airplane ticket and I came and to And a New leather York. jacket. And a leather jacket. For our cold winters. <laughs> yeah, which I figured didn't really cut it in the New York winter. No, not really. <laughs> so you moved to New York. Is that where you started uh, Spooky Ghost? Yeah, Spooky Ghost came, so I started to you know, try and find my way onto the ladder in, in the New York scene. But I never stopped writing and trying to express that side of myself. So Spooky Ghost became the name for my solo project. It was a nickname given to my guitar player, my guitar playing from from the my partner in Hinterland. His nickname from a guitar playing was Spooky Ghost. So mm. when I needed a name, it just kind of popped up and there it was. He would say, play that stuck. Spooky Ghost stuff? Yeah, do that Spooky Ghost thing. Ah. I always wondered where that name came from. And so, yeah, so I'd play in the, out in the coffee houses in Chennai and, and uh, the living room and places like that. So you played around Greenwich Village and, and places like that. Did you yeah. live down there in that area? Yeah, I lived on Ludlow. Oh, Ludlow. Yeah. I mean, I, that just brings back a flood of memories for me because I started playing down in Greenwich Village around um, 88, 89. And it, it's very different now than it was then, as I'm sure you know. 
a lot of those yeah. great clubs are gone, Bitter End and the Bottom Line and Kenny's Castaways, and there were so many, the Red Lion and the Village yeah, yeah. Gate, and it just went on and up, Manny's Car Wash. and There was this one place I used to play, the Sun Mountain Cafe. It was on 82 West 3rd Street, and yeah. it, it was sold, and they changed, and they kept it as a, as a club, but they changed the name to the Bagot Inn, and I asked them, why the Bagot Inn? And somebody told me, Oh, that the bag it in is the CBGB of Ireland, and yeah. I never substantiated that. But th yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, it was it was with the premier venue in Dublin was the bag it in. It was this pub uh, on Bagot Street, and uh, there was a stage, and a lot of people would play there, and, and uh, it was a big club in Dublin. Bag it in, oh my god! Wow, so they were right. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's amazing. I, I saw a lot of bands in the bag it in, and I played there. <laughs> Well, I saw a lot of bands at the living room. Oh, yeah. So uh, that, that was a club that was very well known at that time. I don't think they're there anymore, are they? The living mm -hmm. room? They're gone, right? They moved. They were at Stanton and Allen, and then they moved to Ludlow, and, and then they got priced out. What's significant? an art gallery now. <laughs> what's significant about the living room is one day you were playing there, and a gentleman named David Bowie walked in. Yeah. And he saw your show, and after the show, he asked you to join his band. Yeah. And not only join his band, but become the musical director of his band. That yeah, that that happened. Uh, you know, not not all at once, but th that did happen. Um, yeah, it was pretty pretty amazing, pretty amazing. I mean, that's New York for you. Uh, you know, uh, New York forces you to I think work incredibly hard and really define who you are. It was a really good filter for me, and it really instructed me on what my best qualities were and what I was what my weaknesses were so you know I think that's what Spooky Ghost was all about was about trying to be the sandbox where I could go and experiment and try and just be the person yeah. you know be the guitar player that I wanted to be and David loved that and he came down he came down to check me out I played on one there's a little bit of a story right before that where I was producing I was playing with some musicians and then they were involved in this project and they needed a producer and I got the job to produce the record and so I was working in the little room in Looking Glass which was Philip Glass's studio right there at um, Houston and Broadway and David loved David lived around the corner and David loved that studio because he could walk to work you know and he was up the hall in the big room with my friend Mark Platty who's a, an extraordinary uh, producer engineer and was working with David at the time he did the Earthling record with David. And wow. They were working on the toy record at that time. And Mark knew my playing. And he came down with a CDR and said, uh, would you put a guitar, would I put a guitar track on this, on this Bowie song that he was kind of searching for a part on? So he gave it to me and I brought it to my, I was then in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. I had a little flat there and I had a, a little Pro Tools old one. And I remember plugging that disc in and, there was a Bowie song there, and uh, that was a night. But I did the guitars, and I brought it back the next day, and apparently David loved it. So he wanted to come down and see me play live. And, uh, and then he offers you this extraordinary opportunity. Yeah. Was it daunting to not only work with an artist like David Bowie, but to be put in charge of directing the band? I mean, yeah. th those were big shoes to fill. You, yeah. Just as a guitar player alone, you have Adrian Ballou and... Uh, 
Earl Slick and all these oh, amazing guitar it, yeah. players, it's, and now it's you. Yeah, it's your turn, and you're going to direct the band as well. Yeah, that must have been. Is that organizational hell when you have to <laughs> direct a band like that? I won't say it wasn't a lot of work. It's a lot of work. I mean, what happened was David said apparently, "Can Jerry rock?" to Mark and Mark said well come and see him in the living room so he went to the living room he saw me play said do you want to be in the band so I became part of the band and that was the he he made the heathen record and the low record and we did the uh, meltdown festival in London and Mark was still in the band and Mark was his MD and so that's how that went Earl Slick was the other guitar player in the band we had Mike Garson Gail Ann Dorsey um, Sterling Campbell amazing band and then the next year, uh, David did the reality record and Mark Platty had to leave because he had this other commitment. And so Mark put my name up for the music director. Wow. Job. And I remember Mark calling me and said, I, I just put you up for the job. You should take the job. And I, I was on the Williamsburg Bridge in a, t in a taxi going to a gig. And I was like, oh, my God, I, I, I need to think about this. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, I can't, I can't do that. And then all my friends were like, you're crazy, you've got to take that. And I was like, that sounds crazy, you know. So then I thought about it for a few days and I was like, well, I, I got to take it. So I did. But David, you know, the magical thing about David was he, um, he put you right at ease, you know. He wanted you to be relaxed and he wanted you to be you and he wanted you to do your thing. He didn't want to intimidate you. And he knew that that was the best way to get, get the best out of people. And everybody, he treated everybody like that. So once I got over the in you know the the first kind of like oh my god I can't do that I just got there and I realized I asked what, what you know saw what needed to be done I I'd done a bunch of producing and I'd I'd always been the leader in my band so I kind of I kind of knew what had to be done in in those ways you just got to get get a, get everybody informed and yeah figure out what David wants and work up the arrangements in the morning. He'd come in in the afternoon and he had a lot of his team around him. So it wasn't like I needed to build everything from scratch, but I just needed to kind of take it over and bring it into my world and uh, figure out. Drive the ship. Drive the ship. Yeah, David. And it was an incredible ship. <laughs> oh, uh, obviously. I mean, yeah. everything he did was, was uh, enigmatic and unique and brilliant yeah. in its yeah. own way. Yeah. And was David looking for a guitar player, you or anybody for that matter, who was able to conform to his many incarnations, or was he just looking for that inimitable Jerry Leonard sound? Well, I think he had decided to do the Heathen record. Uh, David Torn had done a lot of the guitars on, on the Heathen record. Incredible. David Torn, another yeah, great musician. Incredible guitar player. Beautiful, beautiful musician. He knew that he was going to play that stuff live, and he needed somebody so the, the term out of the box guitar player or in the box or should be in the box I don't know what it's called but he needed somebody to cover a lot of that stuff and the low record co-produced with him so there was a lot of sonic stuff let's just say and I think that's when David came and saw me he he realized that 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 was my kind of world you know I could play some straight ahead guitar but really my world was the sonic stuff and we had Earl Slick who's a you know classic kind of lead guitar player so it became a really good combination we had earl on one side which was much more straight ahead and then i had all my kind of crazy guitar rig and sonic stuff going on 
So suddenly you've been thrust up on these big stages now with a big star, a great artist. You, you yeah. graduated from these Greenwich Village stages to these big world stages. What kind mm -hmm. of a transition was that? Was that overwhelming to suddenly be playing to these huge throngs of people that uh, obviously adore David Bowie? Mm. It is a different energy to play a big show. You have to make certain alterations, I think, in your guitar sound and the parts you choose because the, the places are bigger. But to me, it's, it's probably more intimidating to play in a 50-seater people when you're, mm. when you're by yourself and, and everybody's just right there. Because they're I mean, right it's there not really intimidating, yeah. but it's, it's, a little more, it's a little more immediate or something. I mean, when yeah. we play the big stages, we have, we've had the benefit of rehearsal. We've have, had a beautiful guitar rig that I couldn't lift. <laughs> you know, it wasn't that it was that huge, but it was, it was extensive and... And, and an incredible sound. And you're quite far away from people, aren't you? On, on some and of you're far away. Stages. And I, I had played big stages before I played with David, so I'd had the, you know, the luxury of doing that. But the transition is kind of like, you kind of look at what the next thing that needs to be done. One thing that was to my benefit was when I started doing Spooky Ghost in New York City and I was playing live, I, I was creating everything live on the spot, all the loops, and then playing over it. So it was a very improvisational, spontaneous thing. So when I got to play the stuff with David and to take on some of the these giant intros and outros or whatever, I had said to him, let me have a crack at doing it live. Like, the tendency was to kind of like, oh, we'll just put that stuff on tape and it'll be like a sound effect. I was like, no, let's make it part of the show. Let me Give me the chance to do it. So David was like, go for it. So he gave me the opportunity wow. and the space to do it. And, and I, I had to then figure it out, but I would play it for him and I'd say, look, I just need, you know, I need like 30 seconds, 20 seconds up front where I need to create this thing and then, but he loved the, the theater of it and seeing it happen. And it, it became a really uh, beautiful part of the show where I would go out and sometimes start the show. I'd go out there with my guitar and, start conjuring up these sounds and capturing them and looping them or whatever and creating these textures and then the band would come in on top of it and mm -hmm. it was very dramatic do so you remember the first time you did that the first time i did it was uh it was the opening of the heathen record and we did it at the uh, at the roseland ballroom in new york oh at roseland yeah that was my first show wow it was like very a echoey show. place oh man i was terrified <laughs> and i'm climbing up the ladder to go and onto the stage and David taps me on the shoulder so I'm opening the show and everything it's my first show with David and he taps me on the shoulder and I was like I turn around and he goes don't fuck it up Jerry <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that doesn't help you relax <laughs> that doesn't help you relax at all he snapped me to attention absolutely I saw something really cool on YouTube it was you and David Bowie playing Let's Dance and who else were you standing next to on stage who was playing none other than another one of my very favorite session guitar players, Tim Pierce. Yeah. Have you worked with Tim a lot? I've just met Tim a couple of times over the years, you know. Beautiful man and a beautiful guitar player. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that might have been a, one of those PRS events that, okay. that it was where he was a guest and, and uh, he came and played. I was like, please, will you play all that Stevie Ray Vaughan stuff? I, and I'll do some Ebo stuff. I didn't want him to play <laughs> the, the Stevie Ray Vaughan. Because normally Earl would take that stuff. You know, I can do a, a fair hack job at it, but it's, it's not my first language. You know? Blues. The blues. Yeah. 
I mean, you know, it's weird. We just lost Peter Green and what a, an amazing guitar player. Tremendous. A few years ago, my brother-in-law gave me the box set of Peter Green and I started listening to it and I realized I know all this stuff. So somehow Peter Green had come into the waters and I, I knew all that early Fleetwood Mac stuff. And he was an influence on my guitar playing more, more than I even realize, hmm. you know. I love the way he carved out his riffs and stuff, you know. I always loved guitar players who had that, who could create that really cool, iconic riff or part, guitar part, Yeah, you know, and if that was playable. I mean, come on. It's amazing how many guitarists have their own unique style. I mean, there's yeah. hundreds and hundreds of great guitar players in the I business. love that. I love when people have their own sound. And Me too. Distinctive thing, you know. I'd like to play something that you and David played together right here on the show, a live version, in fact, of Loving the Alien. Was this from Carnegie Hall? The one you're probably going to hear is probably from the reality tour. Okay. But the very first time we did it, you're very well informed, the very first time we did it was in Carnegie Hall. And it's kind of a funny story because it's very David. I, it was like a Tuesday, I got a phone call, and it's David. And, you know, he calls like once every six months or something, you know, or if he's, something's up, if it's David, and he says, do you want to play Carnegie Hall with me on Saturday night? And I'm like... Yeah, I want to play. Sure, David. He says, I want to do Loving the Alien, and I want to do it starting on a C, and I want it to be just you and me. I want it to be just guitar and voice. Wow. And, I was like, and rehearsals are on Friday. Click. I mean, that was, that, was the, <laughs> that was the message. I was like, holy. He delivered the message. That was so, it. So, you know, I started, I started listening to the song, and it's, you know, it's from that record in, in the 80s production, and it's like, I mean, it's talk about kitchen sink production. I mean, it's very dense. And I'm like, oh my God. And it's in a different key and everything. So I took the song apart and transposed it and had to come up with something that worked on the guitar. But, you know, from playing the classical stuff and where the guitar is kind of like more polyphonic, let's just say, you know, doing my spooky ghost stuff where I know that certain things have to hit in a certain way for the guitar to be open and to sound resonate in the room and stuff. So and you I, also sang on it. I sang a little background. Yeah. Sang back, I mean, yeah. you, you, your yeah. pitch is perfect, I noticed. When I watched it, you guys <laughs> are completely in sync. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just great. Uh, so I came up with that little line, uh, a pedio line, and, a, and some, some nice chords to reinterpret the song. David, we did a couple of songs with a string quartet, and Tony Visconti played Ar arco bass, and all those guys, we rehearsed those songs, and they left, and it was just me and David, and he's like, did you get to work on Loving the Alien? And I was like, yeah, well, I was thinking I could do this little arpeggio and then come in with these chords. And he just started, he came in singing and I kept playing and we went through the whole song. I thought I was just going to show it to him, but he was like, he just, and then we finish and he goes, oh, we'll do it just like that tomorrow. And he walks out of the room. That was the rehearsal. Wow. So the next time we did it was Carnegie Hall. Well, let's listen to it right now. This is David Bowie, Jerry Leonard, Loving the Alien. Listen to this. One older song that we decided to do on this tour came about because uh, Jerry, Jerry Leonard and I did an arrangement for a New York show last year of this song and it seemed to be satisfactory. It seemed to be the way that it should maybe always have been done. I don't know. We like doing it this way anyway. This is called Loving the Alien.
Thank you. Jerry Leonard on guitar. So you played on a total of three David Bowie albums. You're on Heathen, you're on Reality, you're on The Next Day. Yeah. And then he released his last album, Black Star. You're not on it. Yeah. I know that he had contacted you at one point before he started Black Star and said, I need to do this other thing, I'm gonna step away, but don't worry, I'll be back. And of course, as we all know, sadly, he never did come back. Yeah. Were you, um, were you bothered by not knowing after the fact and not not being able to get that sense of closure knowing what's coming? Well, you know, it's it's always a little disappointing not to be picked, you know, for the band. But I knew with David that that day was inevitable. You know, he's always changed tack and gone in a different direction. And he needs he needs as an artist, he needed to do that. You know, so it was nice of him to convey that message to me. It was some comfort to know that he was going, but it wasn't because he was like, oh my God, I can't work with that guy again. It was like, I need to go and do something else. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what I got from it. Would I have loved to work with him again? Of course, that would have been such a gift. But I was very happy that he contacted me for the next day. He got me in early for the demo sessions. He ended up coming to my house and we, we recorded a couple of songs, wrote a couple of songs, and two of those songs made the made the record. Yes, I he mean, co-writes you know, with Bowie. And uh, it's extraordinary. And, you know, I was on all nearly all the basic sessions, so I got to be on the record early and be part of things. So I'm very proud of that. Absolutely, and to have two co-writes with David, what was it like writing songs with him? Did you have to defer to him all the time, or did, did you feel he gave you room to, to really add stuff? As I said before, David has this, he had this charm of really making you feel comfortable and feeling at home. It was the same when he came over to write. It, it felt very familiar to me. It felt like what I'd always done in a band. We'd be in the garage, somebody would have an idea. They'd say, I, need, I have this bit, but I need another bit. And then we kind of kick it around, and we come up with something, and then we put the two bits together. Huh and then we'd need another bit. <laughs> and David, he, he, he even hated the term verse, chorus, bridge, all these musical terms. Oh, he'd yeah. always have these little insider. Well, his song structures were so different than other people's. Yeah. So, so I could see that he kind yeah. of railed against that formula. Yeah, and so the writing, it was varied. He came, the first time he came over, he had an idea. I had a piano set up for him. And so I wrote another, the other bit, you know, which maybe became the chorus or something on that song. And there was one of the days where he, um, he, he seemed open to ideas and I, and I had a hard drive full of like little ideas and stuff. And I had this one piece that I'd been working up and I was like, he's gonna love this. I said, can I play this for you? And he's like, okay, go ahead, kind of thing. And then of course, it was, I couldn't find it on the drive and then I found it and I started playing it for him. And as soon as I put it up, I don't know if you've had this experience where you've maybe with certainly as a musician, when you're playing a song or you have a new song and you think it's great and then your friend, you play for your friend and when your friend's energy is there, suddenly it's like, oh no. Yes, that's all my songs. (laughs) Well, I put up this track for David and as soon as it started playing, I was like, oh no, this feels terrible. And he was very, you know, he stood there for a minute and he was like, there's nothing here for me, Jerry. And 
he basically walked out of the room. And that's there. it. He knew. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I really blew that one. And so he left. I went back in the room and I started playing this other thing. And I was like, this is what I should have played for him. So I quickly made a demo of this. It was almost like his energy was still in the room. And so I played in, and we'd been working in this way. So I made this like little demo with an AB, you know, three little parts or whatever. And uh, next time he came over, I said, can I play you something? And he's like, all right, go on. And uh, I played this one and he said, play it again. When it got to the end, he said those magic words. He says, play that again. Uh. And he started singing. So that day we just worked to my demo and that's the song that became boss of me. At one point in the, he sang that into my ear, like it was going by and he sang the, the line boss of me and that that became that song so we recorded a little la 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 vocal and he wrote a melody and uh he had the, he had the chorus right there and then and that song became one of the ones that ended up on boss of me you still think about him a lot yeah yeah i do i do i do and i uh he's one of those little touchstones for me and uh i learned so much from that man you know about being an artist and the artistic process and there's a lot of times when I play live when you play live you never know what's going to happen and we go around the world doing shows and sometimes everything goes smoothly and sometimes the weirdest things happen you know and it can throw you off or the situations are, are compromised and it's it puts you in a bad mood and then you're just kind of like you need to get out of it I often think about David because he was never when I knew him he never fussed with that kind of stuff. He just got on with it. He had a very old school way with about him, like the performance. So he didn't let things upset him and he always gave 100%. And that's a huge, that's been a huge inspiration. So it's even moments like that, you know, I, I turn to him for help. You've been listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z. And don't forget to come back next week for part two of our interview with Jerry Leonard. You don't want to miss it.